You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. I will probably never forget the first time I stood on a podium in front of a full orchestra. It was scary. I was in my late 30s and a graduate student at the University of Arizona. By that time in my life, I'd been conducting choirs for many years. And, uh, but a full orchestra is an entirely different thing. I was used to hearing sopranos, altos, tenors, and basses, and I could do a pretty good job of picking out a wrong note or a sloppy rhythm or a misshaped vowel. But when I stood there in my first rehearsal in front of the University of Arizona Symphony Orchestra, all of a sudden I was confronted with flutes, oboes, clarinets, bassoons, French horns, trumpets, trombones, tuba, timpani, various other percussion instruments, a harp, and all five sections of the string family. I was like a deer in the headlights. As they played through what should have been the lovely strains of Rafe von Williams' Serenade to Music, I knew that the piece was far from performance ready, but I couldn't have picked out half the problems I was hearing and identified and fixed them if my life had depended upon it. I must have done a pretty decent job of faking it because the orchestra didn't break out laughing and they didn't get up and walk out, but at the same time, I felt like a fraud. I had this sinking feeling that I'd been found out, that I didn't really have the ears that I needed to succeed in this doctoral program. Well, what saved my bacon and the imminent performance was some very sage advice from one of my conducting professors. He suggested that I bring a video camera and record the entire first rehearsal, which I did. Having done that, I was able to watch and listen to it later, and somehow all the errors that were such a blur in the moment were easy to hear when I was removed from that pressure of the first rehearsal. I took a lot of notes while watching the video and then knew what to work on when I met with the orchestra for the second time. Sometimes life, especially life at the Christmas season, can feel a little bit like facing an orchestra for the first time, can't it? What I mean by that is that it can be absolutely overwhelming, but with practice, we can begin to figure out how to pick out what's really important and focus on that. I'd like for us to read together our scripture passage for this morning. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew. You can find it on the, in the Black Pew Bible in front of you on page 783, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. If you're able, let's stand together as we read his holy word. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, 
and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This is a familiar passage to most of us, especially because it's one of just two accounts in the Gospels of the birth of Jesus. But the thing that stands out to me about this passage in particular is that there are two names mentioned that the Christ child will bear. In verse 21, the angel says to Joseph, she will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus we can trace back through Greek to a Hebrew name that means God saves. In fact, in the Old Testament, Joshua, one of the main characters, that's the Hebrew form of the same name. It means God saves. So it's easy to see the suitability of that name for one who, according to the angel, would save his people from their sins. But the second name for the Christ child given in this passage is Emmanuel. It's not a common biblical name. As a matter of fact, it only occurs basically three times in Scripture. It occurs in the, in the book of Isaiah in chapters 7 and 8, and then here in the first chapter of Matthew. The prophecy in Isaiah is a double prophecy. It meant something at the time it was given, and then again later. In Isaiah's time, it was spoken to Ahaz, the king of Judah, as a sign that despite Ahaz's unbelief, God would deliver the kingdom of Judah from its enemies. But here in the Gospel of Matthew, written for a Jewish audience, Matthew makes it clear that this prophecy also pertains to the promised Messiah and that Jesus, the one who would save his people from their sins, is that promised Messiah. Matthew also provides us with the special meaning of Emmanuel. It means God is with us. Wow. Wow. Just think of the radical nature of that statement to those who heard it for the first time. God has always been omnipresent, so there's that sense in which we could always say that God was with us. But throughout Old Testament history, God's tangible presence was an occasional and even a terrifying thing. In Exodus chapter 33, when Moses asked to see God's glory. God replied that no one could see his face and live. So God hid Moses in the cleft of a rock, covered him with his hand, and passed by. But here in Matthew, we are told that one of the Christ child's names is Emmanuel, God with us. You see, with the birth of Jesus, history was forever divided into two parts. The part before God took on flesh, and the part after. With the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, God's relationship to humanity was forever changed. Because in a very real and tangible way, God himself was now with the very people that he had created. According to Colossians 2.9, in him, that is Jesus, the whole fullness 
of deity dwells in bodily form. Through his sinless life, his sacrificial death and bodily resurrection, Jesus restored us to relationship with God. And God with us didn't end when Jesus' 30-something years in his physical body were completed. The final words of Jesus that are recorded in the Gospel of Matthew are these. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And before Jesus ascended, or after he ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit came to dwell with all those who believe. And so, through his Holy Spirit, Emmanuel, God is with us, even today. So what does Emmanuel mean for us right now? Well, first of all, because God became flesh in Jesus Christ, we know in a very real sense that God understands what it's like to be in our skin. How encouraging is that? Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 puts it this way. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Popular culture would have us believe that if there is a God, he's some grandfatherly, white-bearded, white-robed Father Time look-alike that's pretty much removed from his creation, or at best maybe stands off and waves his staff to affect things on earth. But in Jesus Christ, we see God first as a helpless baby, Next is a child, perhaps with skinned knees from running around and playing with his friends. And then later, as a carpenter with strong back and with calloused and skillful hands. In Jesus Christ, we see God in ultimate solidarity with the human race. He became one of us. In 1848, Cecil Alexander wrote the words to what has become one of my favorite Christmas carols that we'll sing in another few minutes. It's called Once in Royal David City. One of the stanzas of that carol puts it this way. Jesus is our childhood's pattern. Day by day, like us, he grew. He was little, weak, and helpless. Tears and smiles, like us, he knew. And he feels for all our sadness. And he shares in all our gladness. So in Emmanuel, we have a God who truly knows us, who truly understands you, and who truly understands me. And in spite of all that he knows about us, he loves us unconditionally and invites us to come near. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 22, Jesus was asked, what the most important commandment from the Old Testament was. And he replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. 
Jesus said that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord with everything you've got. And the second commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself. Another way to put this might be worship and adore the Lord and then serve him by loving all those around you. You see, God longs to have relationship with us. That is the mission which Jesus came to make possible. It was God's plan from the beginning to have mankind worship him, to have us glorify God and enjoy him forever, as it says in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But our sin was the obstacle that separated us from God. Through Jesus' incarnation, death, and resurrection, God said to the world, I love you, and I want us to have the beautiful relationship that I created you for. We have done nothing, nor could we do anything to deserve that relationship, but God offers it to us as his free gift this Christmas Day, by far better than any present that we could unwrap. The gift of life, the gift of resurrection, the gift of relationship with the one who created us. What a motivation for worship. Every person longs for deep relationship with others. God created us with that desire, and there's no one who can fulfill it as well and as completely as the one who created us in the first place. And because God is with us, our worship isn't limited to a tabernacle or a temple as in Old Testament times or even to the four walls of this beautiful room. God loves us and invites us to return that love in worship wherever we are and through whatever activity we're engaged in. 1 Corinthians 10, 30, 31 says, Whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Because I'm a musician... I've spent a fairly large percentage of my life in rehearsals. <laughs> and so my perspective might be a little bit skewed. I'm willing to admit that at the outset. But I see our worship, both corporate and private, in one sense as rehearsals. Because when we are reminded in worship of how great God is and what he has done, then we are prepared. Then we're able to respond with our attitudes and our actions. It prepares us for heaven, where our eternal occupation will be the glorious worship of our God, our Lord, and our Savior. But it also prepares us for life on this earth, which is sometimes joyful, sometimes incredibly painful, and often somewhere in between. When we focus our attention on God, we're able to see through the clutter of life through the cacophony of an unrehearsed symphony orchestra and focus on what's really important. I'd like to close with one more story. Gordon Borer was my mentor at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon many years ago, and I still consider him a good friend. Several years ago, as his mother was very sick and just days away from death, Gordon told me about his time sitting at her bedside. After living a lifetime of worship, Mrs. Borer could hardly wait to take her place in the scene of heavenly worship that we read about in Scripture. And one night, Gordon was sitting beside his mother's bed when suddenly she opened her eyes and looked at him. Jesus, she said. No, Mom, it's only me. <laughs> oh, she was really disappointed. <laughs> Every time she fell asleep, she was hoping that she would wake up in glory. 
But you know what my favorite thing about that story is? In the midst of that difficult time of pain, suffering, and imminent death, Gordon's mom was constantly singing hymns, even in her sleep. Those instruments of worship that she had learned in a lifetime of attending worship services were what was sustaining her. Her times of worship turned out not only to be rehearsals for heaven, but also rehearsals for her life here on earth. Our times of worship can, in effect, be rehearsals for the rest of our lives. When we look into God's Word, God's word when we are remind, reminded of what we believe, when we pray together, when we sing together, His praises, all of those things equip us to be worshipers when we leave this place and face all the complexity of life on this earth. When life seems to overwhelm, whether you're facing an orchestra or something much, much more daunting than that, Look to the child of Bethlehem, Emmanuel, the God of the universe, is with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we look into your word and are reminded of your greatness, of your power, and yet of your love, of your incredible incarnation, we can't help but say thank you. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for our salvation provided by Jesus Christ. Thank you for this day that reminds us of just what Christmas really means. We pray, Lord, that you would equip us through this time together to face whatever's coming in the rest of this day, this week, this year ahead. May you receive all the glory and honor through our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.